So 2 Samuel chapter 22, and beginning at the first verse. David sang to the Lord the words of this song when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. He is my stronghold, my refuge, and my saviour. From violent men you save me. I call to the Lord who is worthy of praise, and I am saved from my enemies. The waves of death swirled about me, the torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me, the snares of death confronted me. In my distress I called to the Lord, I called out to my God. From his temple he heard my voice, my cry came to his ears. The earth trembled and quaked. The foundations of the heavens shook. They trembled because he was angry. Smoke rose from his nostrils. Consuming fire came from his mouth. Burning coals blazed out of it. He parted the heavens and came down. Dark clouds were under his feet. He mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his canopy around him the dark rain clouds of the sky. Out of the brightness of his presence, bolts of lightning blazed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded. He shot arrows and scattered the enemies, bolts of lightning and routed them. The valleys of the sea were exposed and the foundations of the earth laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of breath from his nostrils. He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my disaster, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. The Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord. I have not done evil by turning from God. All his laws are before me. I have not turned away from his decrees. I have been blameless before him and have kept myself from sin. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. To the faithful, you show yourself faithful. To the blameless, you show yourself blameless. To the pure, you show yourself pure. But to the crooked, you show yourself shrewd. You save the humble, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them low. You are my lamp, O Lord. The Lord turns my darkness into light. With your help, I can advance against a troop. With my God, I can scale a wall. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is flawless. He is a shield for all who take refuge in him. For who is God besides the Lord? And who is the rock except our God? It is God who arms me with strength and makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to stand on the heights. 
He trains my hands for battle. My arms can bend a bow of bronze. You give me your shield of victory. You stoop down to make me great. You broaden the path beneath me so that my ankles do not turn over. I pursued my enemies and crushed them. I did not turn back till they were destroyed. I crushed them completely and they could not rise. They fell beneath my feet. You armed me with strength for battle. You made my adversaries bow at my feet. You made my enemies turn their backs in flight and I destroyed my foes. They cried for help, but there was no one to save them. To the Lord, but he did not answer. I beat them as fine as the dust of the earth. I pounded and trampled them like mud in the streets. You have delivered me from the attacks of my people. You have preserved me as the head of nations. People I did not know are subject to me, and foreigners come cringing to me. As soon as they hear me, they obey me. They all lose heart. They come trembling from their strongholds. The Lord lives. Praise be to my rock. Exalted be God, the rock, my saviour. He is the God who avenges me, who puts the nations under me, who sets me free from my enemies. You exalted me above my foes. From violent men you rescued me. Therefore I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations. I will sing praises to your name. He gives his king great victories. He shows unfailing kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. Well, thank you very much indeed, John, for that reading. And uh, good morning, everybody. Let me, let me add uh, my welcome to Gareth. It's great to see you this morning. And uh, I'm going to ask for God's help as we turn uh, to this part of his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for speaking to us in this part of your word. And we ask now for ears to hear, for hearts to receive it, for minds and wills to think, so that we might grasp the Lord Jesus Christ and your will for us, that we might live in response to his gospel for your glory. We pray this in his name. Amen. When we read the Bible, the first question and the most important question that should always be in our minds is, what do we learn about Jesus? What do we learn about Jesus? In one sense, this should be obvious. After all, Jesus himself taught us that the whole Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, is all about him. And it should be obvious for anybody who's been in this church over the last few weeks or years as we've been slowly working our way through this long story of David's rise to kingship in 1 and 2 Samuel, because we have seen chapter after chapter that it has all been written to prepare the world for the coming of God's king, the Lord Jesus Christ. As we've watched God's dealings with his chosen Messiah David, we have been learning both through likeness and contrast, both through David's strengths and weaknesses, to understand David's perfect sinless son, who is like David in so many ways, but completes everything David failed to be. 
As I've said a number of times as we've worked through this series, David is the outline, black and white sketch. Jesus is the color picture. David models the set of clothes that he doesn't quite fit, but Jesus fits them perfectly. And so, of course, the first question in our minds as good Bible readers will always be, what does this passage teach us about Jesus? And yet so often, don't you find when we read the Bible or listen to Bible teaching, another question comes to the forefront of our minds in a way that replaces that first question or means we don't even bother to ask it. And that question is, what does this part of the Bible teach about me? Now, this is a hard habit to shake off, and in one sense, it's quite natural. Just notice, as you listen to Bible teaching or as you read the Bible week by week, just notice how much easier it is to concentrate on what the speaker is saying when he is applying the passage to your life circumstances and explaining explicitly the implications for you personally. And you ask any preacher, and there are a number of them scattered around the room, they'll tell you that the most appreciated sermons are those that include lots of so-called application, detailed examples of how the passage impacts your daily life. Now, just to be clear, I am not saying that the question, what has this got to do with me, is wrong or illegitimate. Of course not. It's a perfectly good and proper question. Nor am I against application in Bible teaching. It would be a travesty to listen to any part of the Bible and conclude it was not relevant or applicable to us. All of it is relevant. All of it, every word of the Bible applies to each one of us. It's just that that is the wrong question to begin with. And it's not the most important question to ask. See, the problem comes when our desire to know what the Bible says to us or about us pushes to the background or makes us impatient with the most important question, which is, what does this teach us about Jesus? The problem comes when we turn to God's word with our questions, as if we were at the center of the universe and God was there waiting to answer our questions, rather than coming humbly to what God, who is at the center of the universe, wishes to say to us. And what he wishes to say to us concerns the Lord Jesus Christ. That is always God's agenda in the Bible, to show us Jesus to expand our view of Jesus, to grow in our love of Jesus, to grow in our worship of Jesus. That is always God's agenda whenever we turn to the Bible to see Jesus in his glory and greatness. And here's the thing. It is only when we get that right that the second question has any meaning at all. It's only when we understand that God's plan and purpose for us is Jesus as king, then we can understand where we fit into the story. In other words, as I put on the outline, it's not about you, but it is for you. Now, I mentioned that this morning. I could mention that any week, really, couldn't I, speaking in the Old Testament, but I mentioned that particularly this morning because as we come to this magnificent poem or psalm, 
in which David expresses as personally and as potently as he humanly can his own experience of God. We need to keep this in mind. Because it would be very easy to place ourselves into the story too quickly, to simply jump into David's story as if it were our story, and to read these words as if they are directed about us and our experiences. Now, in order to understand this part of God's word, we need to remember that this, in the first instance, is about David and his particular experiences as God's king, and allow that to point us to Jesus, expand our view of him. And once we've done that, we'll see just how powerful these words become for us. That's the first thing I want to say by way of introduction. It's not about you, but it is for you. Well, this brings us to the second matter I need to mention by way of introduction. This is the story of David, but not as we know it. It's the story of David, but not as we know it. Just look at how the chapter begins, verse 1. David sang to the Lord the words of this song when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. In the song that follows, David looks back on his experience of God over the course of his rise to the kingship, and he is full of amazement and thanks. So it is a psalm, a song of praise. And you can see there from verse 1 that he is particularly praising God for deliverance, for salvation. The reference to being delivered from his enemies, I think, is general. David is not thinking back on any particular moment in time, but he's looking back over the whole period of his life, and he's seeing a pattern at work of David being in need and God rescuing. This is how God has acted towards him. This is how David has come to experience God. At the same time, you'll see that, that he names one of his enemy, his archetypal enemy, Saul. And this reminds him that although the psalm is general and not specific, it reminds us, doesn't it, that David's enemies have been real enemies. He's faced flesh and blood men with swords in their hands. And it's in that context that David has come to know God as saviour. And he's amazed and he's thankful that he has. But as he does this, as he reviews his life and reviews these particular experiences of God, he does so in a particular way. You'll notice that he now leaves the narrative behind and he breaks into song. And so we have this long, detailed poem. Not a narrative, not a set of theological statements, but a poem. And to make things even more interesting, a poem with a particular structure. You may remember if you're here for the last couple of weeks that we saw that the, the structure of this whole section, 21 to 24, is built in a kind of a sandwich structure with two poems or two songs right at the center. And to make things even more interesting, this song has the same structure. Just look at it quickly on the screen. You don't need to write this down because this is basically what's on the sheet, but you can see it more clearly there. That it begins and ends with praise. We've got a little layer of salvation in the middle. And then right in the center... God saves the humble and brings up down the proud. Now, what does all this mean? It means this morning, 
we get to see David's story all over again, but not as we know it. This is the story of 1 and 2 Samuel that we have been looking at now for nearly six years. But it's all put, all condensed into one single poem. Theological reflection. A personal reflection. And what that means is that David kind of lifts the lid. He opens the bonnet on the story of 1 and 2 Samuel. See, at one level, this could have been a tale of political power and human conflict from from anywhere in, in history in one sense. But now we see that this has been God's story. We see the way God has been at work in David's life in a way that we haven't quite seen before. The curtains of the drama, if you like, are pulled back and we get to see what has been going on behind the scenes. And this is why this passage is so exciting and so important. Because now we get to understand what 1 and 2 Samuel has been about all along. And I think that might be quite a surprise. And once we've understood that, we understand God as Saviour. Well, let's turn to the passage then. And we begin with verses 2 to 20. David praises the God who saves. As I said, in the structure, the song starts and ends with Praise And David begins with an explosion of praise. Verse 2, he said, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my, my salvation. He is my stronghold, my refuge and my savior. From violent men you save me. I call to the Lord who is worthy of praise and I'm saved from my enemies. Rock, fortress, Shield, horn, refuge. I wonder if you've used those words to speak to God this week. Well, David does because as he looks back on his life, he doesn't do so from the point of a kind of a theological textbook, but these words are grounded in his personal experience. You may remember that much of David's life was spent on the run from his enemies escaping in the rough, rock, rock, uh, rough, rocky mountain landscapes of the land, hiding in caves and strongholds, being shielded from the arrows and spears of his enemies. Think back to David and Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. Think back to the number of times Saul tried to kill him, or his own son Absalom betrayed him, or the traitor Sheba. David's life was one of hiding, running, in fear from enemies who wished him dead. But now he looks back on all of these times and he can see God was the rock, the fortress, the shield who kept him safe. And so the basic point of these verses is clear, isn't it? David has come to know God as saviour. Four times in two verses he uses the word save, salvation, Saviour. God is a saving God. That is the God David has come to know. And notice how personal it is. God is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. David has not come to know God by some abstract philosophical reflection or some kind of internal promptings of the Spirit. 
He's come to know God through experiencing life-threatening situations. God has actually saved him. There's one other detail to notice in these opening verses. And that is the many echoes of the song of Hannah we see in 1 Samuel 2. Hannah's song, you may remember, began the whole story back in 1 Samuel 2. You may remember that she was not a warrior celebrating military victories, but a mother celebrating the gift of a longed-for child. And strikingly, she uses very similar language to David. She praises God as her rock, her horn, her salvation from enemies. Why do you get these two bookends like that, saying similar things about two very different instances of salvation? Because in both cases, God works in a surprising, unique way. God saves by turning things on their head. He saves by humbling the proud and exalting the humble. And for this, God is worthy of praise. Well, having introduced the basic theme, which is praising God for salvation, David now takes us into a deep dive into that experience in verses 5 to 20. It begins in 5 to 7 with a pair of potent images of despair in the face of death. First look at verse 5, where David pictures himself being overwhelmed by a raging torrent. It's a picture of the chaos of the sea catching him in their power, isn't it? Maybe you've experienced that yourself, being swimming in the sea and you feel your feet leave the ground and you feel that helplessness. And then in verse 6, a change of image. He's now like an animal trapped in a snare. Both these images are describing the same thing. They're describing the helplessness in the face of death. Death which is invincible, inescapable. Makes you feel utterly overwhelmed to think about that. And so what can a person do in the face of such destructive power? What can anyone do in the face of such deep distress? Well, the answer is breathtakingly simple. Look at verse 7. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I called out to my God. From his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came to his ears. Just ponder verse 7 and see what a stunning truth it teaches. Something perhaps, if you've been a Christian for a while, you've come to take completely for granted. That we live in a world that God hears. Our world is a world in which our prayers reach God in heaven in the midst of the chaos and destruction of death. God hears the cries of his people. From heaven, pictured here as a temple or sanctuary, his ears are open. And he hears the straightforward, simple words of those who call him for help. David's God, the God of all creation, is available, attentive. He can be summoned to rescue. Well, what happens when God answers that call? In verses 8 to 16, David now fades into the background. And we get a stunning poetic picture of what it means for 
the God of heaven to save. And perhaps surprisingly, it begins with anger. Look at verse 8. The earth trembled and quaked. The foundations of the heavens shook. They trembled because he was angry. Smoke rose from his nostrils. Consuming fire came from his mouth. Burning coals blazed out of it. The language of God shaking the world takes us back to another account in the Bible story, the account of the Exodus and Moses' song in Exodus 15 and God's appearance on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. In other words, God has done this before and he's doing it again for David. And when God acts, notice that the whole universe knows it. It is seismic, it is global, it is inescapable, it is terrifying. And the reason? Because he was angry. Why is God angry? Well, because his anointed king has been threatened with destruction. His anger is roused against those who harm his king. His anger is roused against the Philistines, against Saul, against Goliath, against all who have placed David under the threat of death. And so in answer to David's prayer for help, the God of heaven is incandescent with rage. A rage that intensifies from one line to the next, smoke, then fire, then blazing coals, breathed out like a mythical dragon. And then with image, piling upon image, we are invited to see what it looks like for God to save He parts the barrier between heaven and earth, verse 12, like someone drawing back a pair of curtains. He rides the heavenly beings like a warrior on a horse, verse 11. The whole world is illuminated with the light of his anger, verses 12 to 13. He defeats the enemy with a a rain of arrows. The thundering of his voice rebukes the waves, neutralizes the threat, 14 to 16. And only in verses 17 to 20 does David himself make a a reappearance. And notice he is now the thoroughly passive recipient of God's rescue. He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. It is the... SWAT team, the SAS, the helicopter rescue. David lifts up a cry for help and does nothing more. And God comes down and draws David up into safety. And David now praises God as his personal savior. Well, there's the first part of the song. And I just want to pause there and make three observations before we continue. First, it's worth pondering why we get this vivid, poetic description in the first place. I realize in a, in a room like this will be various attitudes towards poetry. If I asked you to raise your hand to say who has read poetry this week as part of their pleasure, I won't do it just to not embarrass those who keep their hands down. 
I suspect those people would be in a minority. Some of you read Wordsworth, Milton, Wendell Berry in your free time as you go to sleep at night. But most probably don't. And to use the phrase in a different way, maybe you're a little bit of a Philistine when it comes to poetry. That's no criticism, but you are sitting there thinking, in all honesty, why do we have 141 words in English to say what David could have said in a single sentence? Why couldn't David just say, well, he saved me and I'm very glad? Why all the warrior language? The thunder and lightning, the cherubs, the fire and smoke. Why all the drama? Why such a big deal? And the obvious answer is because salvation is a big deal. David is trying to put into words, into our minds, into our eyes, if you like, something that is ultimately bigger than words can express, bigger than our minds can grasp. This is what... Poetic language and apocalyptic language in the Bible is always trying to do. He's trying to show us the horror of his predicament and the greatness of God's salvation. He's trying to get us to see beyond the ordinary and the mundane. To see what is really happening in the spiritual world. And so we get to review the story again. And you might think, well, it's not that mundane, is it? But actually think about it. When David killed Goliath with a stone back in 1 Samuel 17, the heavens and earth didn't shake. When David eluded Saul, when he tried to skewer him with a spear back in 1 Samuel 19, there was no thunder from heaven. When David escaped from his son Absalom, do you remember, because Absalom's hairdo was so outrageously big that he got caught in a tree, there was no smoke or fire from heaven. Or when the childless Hannah's prayers were answered and God enabled her to conceive, there was nothing on the Richter scale. But what David is saying is that God used these ordinary means, these natural means, to do something very, very great. This is the way God works, isn't it? God is sovereign, He is king. He doesn't work in weird, mystical ways. He might work through a tree, a stone, the lucky movement of a man avoiding a spear, the action of a human sperm on an egg. Ordinary ways that you can't see, but the poetry shows us what is going on. It shows us that when God saves, he is doing something enormous. And much later... When David's descendant, Jesus, is hanging, bleeding from a cross, nothing could look less spectacular. Nothing could look less like an act of salvation. But we're being taught here to see that that was the moment of his great victory, a great exodus, a great conquest of evil, a dramatic rescue. And so the first thing is this gives us eyes to see the gospel in new ways. Second observation is to notice that it's in his distress that David comes to know God. Look again at verse 7. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I called out to my God. 
From his temple he heard my voice, my cry came to his ears. Now remember that this is specifically about David and his rise to the kingship of Israel and his circumstances were extreme. He was facing annihilation by powerful enemies. This is not about us. But it is for us. And there's a wider principle here that we can grasp. See, many of us can think, can't we, of times when we have been distressed, when chaos and fear and the idea that life is crumbling around us has overwhelmed us and we've cried out to God. And looking back, however God chose to answer that cry, we know, don't we, that in those times we have grown in our knowledge of God in ways that we wouldn't have done if that distress had not come. We realize looking back that God was at work shaping us, revealing himself to us. For example, a friend was sharing with Emma and I recently how years of suffering illness, he had come to see in the end that his affliction, although terrible, had been a strange gift from the Lord because it had helped him to learn to cry out to God in new ways. And in his distress, he had come to know God as Savior. John Bunyan, reflecting on Jesus' image in John 15 of the gardener pruning the vine to produce fruit, he says this, Growth in Christ is not the smooth easygoing process some folks seem to think. It is wounding work. This cutting and breaking of the hearts. Where there is grafting of something lesser into the greater, there will always be a cutting, for the graft must be let in with a wound. Heart must be set to heart and edge to edge, or there will be no life, no sap from the root to branch, to bud, to flower, and to fruit. And yet even more fundamentally, we are all faced with the overwhelming prospect of death and beyond that, judgment. And this passage reminds us that when you face that, admit that your predicament is terrible and cry out to God. That is when you come to know God as Savior. You can't come to know God any other way. You cannot come to know God through reading a theological textbook or through practicing a religion or mystical experience. Do you understand what I'm saying? God is saviour. And unless you are saved from the predicament of death, you don't know God. You cannot know God. And I think this has all sorts of practical implications for us. For example, if you are someone here who doubts that God is real, you doubt that he is there, then you could spend the whole of your lifetime trying to nail down every intellectual question about creation or evolution or the problem of evil. Or you could throw yourself on God's mercy, cry out to God in your distress. As you face judgment and death, And you will come to know God as saviour, because that is who he is. Thirdly, 
Notice the reason he did all this, verse 20. David says, he rescued me because he delighted in me. Now, this does not mean that David was a delightful chap and because of this, God decided he ought to rescue him. Now, that phrase, God delighted in me, takes us again to the Exodus account of the history of Israel. In Numbers 14, 8, God rescued Israel and brought them into the promised land because he delighted in them. He delighted in them because he had chosen them. And this is worth keeping in mind now as we turn to the central section of the song, which is also the most surprising and important. God saves the humble and brings down the proud. See, what we come to next ought to be a surprise to readers of 1 and 2 Samuel, verse 21. The Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord. I have not done evil by turning from my God. All his laws are before me. I have not turned away from his decrees. I have been blameless before him and have kept myself from sin. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. And what are we all thinking? We're all thinking, yeah. In your dreams, David. It's an elephant in the room moment, isn't it? It's an emperor with no clothes moment. We are baffled by this, even a little embarrassed that David can claim this level of righteousness for himself when the narrative of 1 and 2 Samuel has clearly shown that David is a sinful man, that he's got blood on his hands, that he's not kept himself clean. And we may think of a number of instances, but the particular elephant in the room that we're all thinking of, of course, is David's appalling affair with the wife of Uriah the Hittite and his murder of Uriah to cover his sin in 2 Samuel 11. How can a murderous adulterer claim that he is righteous? How do we square these things together? Well, as I've read up on this during the week, I've seen that as much ink has been spilt over this question as Philistine blood was spilt in last week's passage. But let me just give you three options, and then I'll give you the right one. Some suggest that the poem was written before David's adultery with Bathsheba happened. So he can claim this, and we should take it face value. But of course, that doesn't solve the problem because it's hard to imagine any biblical character claiming to be sinless whether they've committed adultery or not. Others suggest that the language of laws and decrees in verse 23 is a kind of a covenantal language. So David is not claiming moral perfection, but he's claiming faithfulness to God's covenant in 2 Samuel 7. But that doesn't solve the problem either, does it? Because that suggests that God owed David salvation for keeping his side of the covenant. And you may remember from 2 Samuel 17 that it was a very one-sided covenant. Salvation is always a gift from God. It's never deserved. Final suggestion is that David is not so much claiming moral perfection, but a kind of unwavering integrity in his attitude to God, which includes repentance from sin. So, Verse 22, for example, he says, I've not wickedly departed from my God, or the word blameless in verse 24 could be translated as integrity. The problem is 
but none of those options give credit to the narrator who obviously knows what we know about 2 Samuel 11. And the other problem is that that is not what David says. Look again at verse 21 and feel, which I think the writer wants us to feel, the shock of this. The Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has rewarded me. Well, the answer is actually not very difficult. It's not some new wrinkle in the Bible, some weird departure from sound doctrine. It's not Roman Catholic works righteousness slipping through the back door. I think this is actually standard core Christianity. David is actually saying something uncontroversial, something that all Christians can say. The difficulty is not an intellectual one. The difficulty we have is just believing it. See, the fact that David is righteous in 2 Samuel 22 is because God made him righteous in 2 Samuel 12. He was sinless because God had forgiven his sin. His hands are clean because God has washed them. This is exactly what we read in 2 Samuel 12. When the prophet Nathan came to him, David admitted his adultery with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah, the husband. He said, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. And when David wrote about this in Psalm 51, he spoke of what God has done as washing him thoroughly, purging him from his iniquity, washing him whiter than snow. And so what David says should be taken at face value. David is righteous because God has made him righteous. In the light of this, we come now to the very heart and core of the song. And you'll remember that this is the center of the center. And so I think we're coming here to the kind of the, the pumping heart of the book itself. Verse 26. To the faithful, you show yourself faithful. To the blameless, you show yourself blameless. To the pure, you show yourself pure. But to the crooked, crooked you show yourself shrewd. Now, again, these lines feel uncomfortable because what they seem to be saying is that people get what they deserve. Good people get saved. Bad people get condemned. But what it is actually saying, if you look at it and think about it, is a truth the Bible affirms everywhere. That God responds to people in keeping with how they respond to him. This is not about sin or lack of sin or being bad or being good. It is about how we treat God. It is our attitude to God. And the key to that, which I want to suggest is the key to the entire book, is verse 28. You save the humble, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them low. Here is the thread that has come all the way from Hannah's song in 1 Samuel 2. The defining characteristic of someone God saves, someone he delights in, someone he has chosen, is humility towards God. Humility which shows itself in a willingness to listen and submit to God's word. Just to be clear, this attitude is, is not a work that earns a favor. 
Salvation is always undeserved. But there is a necessary condition. There is a posture that we must adopt to receive salvation. And it's humility. It's the ability to trust in God. In other words, it's faith. And this is really what the story has all been about. The long-running contrast between David and Saul. It's been perplexing because sometimes Saul has actually appeared to be a better person than David. In some ways, David's sins are greater than Saul's sins. But in humility, David listens to God's word and repents. While Saul remains proud to the end. In other words, the Lord saves those who know they need saving. He saves the humble. This is precisely what Jesus says, Matthew 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this is the God who is Savior. He turns everything on its head. Who saves the humble and brings down the proud. No wonder David is filled with awe and praise. Which brings us to our final section when we return to the theme of salvation. We now come more briefly to the final ring of the sandwich. And David works his way back to where he began. And so salvation 32 to 46. Here, the theme of salvation mirrors the first part in 5 to 20. David returns to the story of his battles and conquests and victories which are his particular experience of God's salvation. And if we were to skim read this, we might think, well, it's just the same as the first section, but there are two differences here. First, in verses 5 to 20, David was passive. Remember, he was just the person receiving the rescue from the bottom of the helicopter. But now, David is empowered And the poetry gives us this incredible picture of David kind of being rebuilt like some mighty warrior, piece by piece, body part by body part. His feet, verse 34, his hands, verse 35, his shield, 36, his ankles, verse 37. God is remaking David for a purpose. And that purpose is to rule the world. The second thing emphasized in this section different to the first, is that God does this so that David can destroy his enemies. In the first section, it was God who came and destroyed his enemies. Now, God empowers David to destroy his enemies. Just look at the language he uses. Verse 38, crushing, destruction. Crushing beneath his feet. Verse 39, beating to fine dust. Verse 43. And so in this section, David is not just saved, But he's victorious. He doesn't just survive. He conquers. He is lifted up by God, exalted and ascends to the highest place. Verse 44 to 46. He becomes the ruler of the world. And so while the first half gives us a picture of David who is saved, who survives, the second half gives us a picture of a great warrior king being equipped by God to save others, to destroy all opposition. 
And isn't that exactly what we have seen unfold in the book of 1 and 2 Samuel? As David has been placed on the throne of Israel in order to conquer God's enemies, which itself goes back to God's promise to Abraham to bring his people into a land of peace and back to Adam, where God's purpose is that man will rule the world under him. And so now we see those messy, bloody battles in their proper context. This has all been God's doing, as he said to Hannah he would do in 1 Samuel 2. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder against them from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. This is the gospel of the Old Testament. This is God's promise to the world to give a king who will rule king who will save and so david comes in the last section 47 to 51 to praise with which he began look at verse 50 therefore i will praise you O lord amongst the nations i'll sing praises to your name he gives his king great victories he shows unfailing kindness to his anointed to david and his descendants forever In the beautiful symmetry of the psalm, all the themes of the opening section return. The story of 1 and 2 Samuel are brought to a climax. Deliverance from enemies and violence. God is the rock. God's king installed to rule the world. And an ecstatic praise to God for his salvation. All of this, a brilliant, thankful review of David's past. A fitting summary of the book. But again, there is something new here. Something in the last couple of lines that points us to the future. That word kindness, notice, in verse 51, is a word we've seen before. The Hebrew word hesed, the steadfast love of God that we've seen at a couple of key points in these books. It's a word that God used in 2 Samuel 7 when he promised to David an everlasting dynasty. He said, I will never take away my loving kindness from you are your descendants, the way he took it away from Saul. And here is the other new thing in that line. The word descendants, the word seed, and that word forever. Here is the final look ahead. Because David, after all, was a man who sinned, who failed. He wasn't the ruler of nations. He was flawed, human, weak, like the rest of us. But the poem ends, therefore, as well as a look back and a look at fulfillment, it ends with a note of hope. God, who has done everything he said he would do in the Song of Hannah, has saved his king, has made him great, has destroyed his enemies, humiliated the proud. But what God will do is still to come. And if that's what David did to a flawed king, if God did to a flawed king like David, what will he do? when David's perfect son arrives. And so the song only makes sense when we see it fulfilled in Christ. He fits the clothes David wears imperfectly. And so this is here to help us to see Jesus. Well, in that case, then, let's conclude with those two questions in the right order. 
Firstly, and most importantly, what do we learn about Jesus? Well, it tells us, doesn't it, that he is a very great saviour. Yesterday, the world witnessed the coronation of a king. And a very impressive and splendid thing it was to watch. But I wonder if you can see the contrast between the coronation of King Charles and the coronation of Jesus. King Charles became king sitting in a chair in Westminster Abbey. He was handed his crown and orb and scepter from the hands of others. As far as I could see, there wasn't a drop of blood spilt yesterday. No suffering, no distress, no agonized cry, no dramatic rescue. But as we follow the story of David, and as we've now reviewed it, we see that he comes into his kingdom through suffering, through persecution, through injustice, followed by vindication. Just remember how much David suffered. He was attacked, hunted, betrayed. Remember the tears as he crossed the Kindron Valley and climbed the Mount of Olives? Remember the cursing and stoning of the traitor Shimei? The betrayal of his own son? David suffered on his way to the throne. And because of the way God works, he turned things round, he destroyed his enemies, he raised him up to rule. And this gives us a pattern for understanding Jesus. This helps us to lead the lift, lead the lid, lift the lid, sorry, on the cross of Christ. For Jesus too suffered in order to reign, not on a battlefield, but on the cross. As the Archbishop of Canterbury rightly said in his very short sermon, Jesus' throne was his cross, his crown, a crown of thorns. That's when all the enemies of God demonstrated their hatred to God's anointed. That's when the snares of death entangled him, plunging him into the darkness of the grave. And like David, Jesus called upon God as his father. He called out to God in his distress. And as God had done before, at the Exodus, and for David, God heard, God rescued, raised him, exalted him to be the ruler of this world. That is what it took for Jesus to reign. That is what it took for God to forgive sinners. That's what it looked like for God to come in burning anger to rescue us from death and take us to safety. So what do we learn about Jesus? Tells you he is a very great saviour. And his greatness is seen on the cross. To miss this, to look somewhere else for salvation, to think he is one of many paths is the most foolish and tragic mistake you can make. And so we're going to sing in a moment, there is no other name. In heaven can be found through whom we are redeemed, through whom your grace abounds. No other name but Jesus Christ, our Lord. Well, if that's what it teaches about Jesus, we can now ask, what does it have to say to us? What does this passage have to teach us? Where are we in the story? 
Well, if Jesus is such a great saviour, we must be in need of such great salvation. It's easy to forget, isn't it? In our relative day of safety, we don't feel the threat of death, the closeness of death quite so clearly. Perhaps we forget our predicament is as serious as it is. And we are very prone to forget the seriousness of our sin that deserves death. So we may say a quick prayer of confession and move on. Thinking this is a minor problem for God to overcome. But this psalm helps us to remember that behind the scenes of our salvation, behind those words, forgive me, is a thundering, world-shaking God of creation, swooping down from heaven to rescue, seismic, earth-shattering, death-defying, just to forgive our sins. Do you think Jesus would have done all of that if there were no other way? And if that is our experience, if we know that we have been rescued and we've come to know God as Saviour, then follow David's example and respond with thanks and praise. But if you've not come to know God that way, then this morning would be a great time to begin. The weekend in which the United Kingdom and the Commonwealth gained a new king is a great time to become a Christian. Because it just reminds us that King Charles cannot mend our broken world. He won't respond when you cry out in distress and fear. He can't bind up the brokenhearted. But Jesus can. He is the one who has come into our chaos and darkness to save us. As Paul puts it in Colossians 1, he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So what better time than now to bow the knee to him, who delights in those he chooses, to enter his kingdom of peace? And I'm going to pray a prayer that you could pray and echo in your heart. Whether you've done this before or for the first time, This is how you come to know God as Savior. Let let me lead us in a prayer. Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Heavenly Father, I know that I do not deserve to enter your kingdom, but need your mercy. Thank you for showing me my desperate situation as I face death, darkness, and judgment that I deserve. Thank you that Jesus destroyed those enemies and rescued me when he died in my place on the cross and rose again. Please forgive me and cleanse me so I might live forever in your kingdom, praising you with a humble, thankful heart. Amen.